Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikaway. Welcome back to a new edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Saturday, February 10th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing siege of Gaza and Palestine. The Iranian foreign minister says that the Israeli government needs the current war to survive. Georgia police and FBI agents have raided the homes of activists seeking to halt Cop City. And Malawi has dropped uh, visa requirements for people holding United States, uh, United Kingdom, and China passports. In the second hour, we listened to an address delivered by South African Minister of International Relations, Cooperation in International Relations, on the situation in Palestine. Later, we hear a report from Pam Africa on the medical state of the political prisoner Mumia Abu Jamal. Finally, we listened to excerpts uh, from a lecture delivered by Shirley Graham DuBois on African history in honor of African American History Month. These and other features will be brought to you. During the course of our program, uh, stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with uh, the music of the Cape Verde Islands uh, off the coast of West Africa. We'll listen to a live concert uh, from Cesaria Evora from 2007. Let's listen in.
que antes as denunciar Já tinha hora para enfrentar a realidade Um povo sofrendo, já carnacido Para viver na página progresso Se não tiver fé na nossa capacidade Manha África está sempre feliz um dia África, 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 África minha, África nossa. África, 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 verso de mundo, continente fecundo. África, 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 África minha, África nossa. África, 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 verso de mundo. Continente fecundo, não foi cobiçal, esclorónica no lição. Vos filho, martirizado, não recupera, não dignidade e não esperança, para não apertar futuro na nos África, 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 África minha, África nossa. África, 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 perto de mundo, continente fecundo. África, 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 África minha, África nossa. África, 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 perto de mundo, continente fecundo. África está sempre feliz um dia África, África, África África minha, África nossa África, África, África Perto de mundo, continente fecundo África, África, África África minha, África nossa África, 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 dentro de mundo, continente fecundo.
marginal Nos tienen si madrugada Se brinca nos gozan O se brinca mai más bai Hoy sabura Se brinca na me triola Nos tienen si madrugada Tu mi marcha es quebranareia Na vida marginal Nos tienen si madrugada Se brinca nos gozan O se brinca mai más bai Hoy sabura Se brinca na me triola Nos tienen si madrugada Vida marginal está na moda, na vida marginal está morre peixe. Olha, menes calo de madrugada, menes calo no tapas-tapas. Vida marginal está na moda, na vida marginal está morre peixe. Olha, menes calo de madrugada. Na vida marginal, no tienes ni madrugada. Se brinca no total, se brinca mai más bai. Hoy sabura, se brinca na me criona. No silencio y madrugada, tu prima estás quebrando areia. Vida marginal está na moda, na vida marginal está muy pez. Oye, ven escalo y madrugada, ven escalo y no te pasas tan. Vida marginal está na moda, na vida marginal está muy pez. Oye, Saudade, saudade, saudade 
samba, niño casa mata, ven cuara samba, niño camino. Angola, Angola, hoy porta, niño casa mata, ven cuara samba,
veia Na odisseia de cada dia Proa da feia, proa da vem Naquele maroc, o gente a gritar Roga, roga, Virgem Maria Pega, pega, Santa Barba Roga, roga, Virgem Maria Pega, pega, Santa Barba Povo das ilhas é um povo de marinheiro Mas sou para viajar longe Mas nós mais, ele é brincadeira Essa é história, nasce em glória Mas só dá, já separou Para mim, que tão lindo Mas que tá levando Mas que tá trazendo Quero ver aqui no momento que ele anda grande Gente, a pode acreditar Mar é peso Só para peso Só para peso E pescador Roga, roga, Virgem Maria Pega, pega, Santa Barba Roga, roga, Virgem Maria Pega, pega, Santa Barba Das ilhas é um povo marinheiro Mas só para viajar longe Mas nós mais, ele é brincadeira Essa história, nasce glória Mas toda está separando Para mim, e tão lindo Mas que está levando Mas que está trazendo Que ele parquinha no momento que ele anda grande Gente, a bota acreditar Mar é peixe, sopa peixe, sopa peixe E pescador, roga, roga, Virgem Maria Pega, pega, Santa Barba Roga, roga, Virgem Maria Pega, pega, Santa Barba Roga, roga, Virgem Maria, pega, pega, Santa Barba. Roga, roga, Virgem Maria, pega, pega, Santa Barba. Roga, roga, Virgem Maria, pega, pega, Santa Barba. Volta a cabeça 
São Vicente é um brasileiro Cheio de alegria, cheio de cor Nesse três dias de loucura Já tem guerra e carnaval Nesse morabanço sem igual Não tem um fichinha, mas tudo tem igual Já vou explicar, vou poder entrar Qual que vai pra casa faltar Hoje é dia de carnaval Não um vestinho mais do Senhor Acabou de citar, vou poder entrar Qual que vai pra casa faltar Hoje é dia de carnaval São Vicente é um brasileiro Cheio de alegria, cheio de cor Nesse três dias de loucura Cá tem guerra e carnaval Nesse morabanço sem igual são Vicente é um brasileiro Cheio de alegria, cheio de cor Nesse três dias de loucura Cá tem guerra e carnaval Nesse parabéns sem igual Carnaval, mesmo hora vezes sem igual. São Vicente, um brasileiro, cheio de alegria, cheio de cor. Nesse três dias de loucura, cá tem guerra e carnaval, mesmo hora vezes sem igual. Tchau. Mucho. 
como si fuera esta noche la última vez Bésame Bésame mucho Que tengo miedo tenerte y perderte otra vez Bésame Bésame mucho Como si fuera esta noche La última vez Bésame Bésame mucho Que tengo miedo tener perder otra vez quiero tenerte muy cerca mirarme en tus ojos verte junto a mí pienso que tal vez mañana yo estaré lejos muy lejos de ti Bésame mucho Como si fuera esta noche La última vez Bésame Bésame mucho Comido tenerte y perder otra Perderse 
Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, August the 10th, uh, Saturday, February 10th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, and that was the music of Cesaria Ivor uh, from the West African uh, Cape Verde Islands and uh, a live concert from 2007. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. These are some of the uh, lead stories uh, in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. At least 29 Palestinians were killed and others were wounded earlier today in intense Israeli airstrikes that targeted the central and southern Gaza Strip. The Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza reported uh, that at least 25 civilians, mostly children and women, were killed and others injured uh, when Israeli warplanes intensively launched airstrikes and artillery shelling on several homes in central and northern Rafah, south uh, of the Gaza Strip. Simultaneously, uh, Israeli gunboats intensively conducted a series of airstrikes targeting the coast of Deir al-Bala in the central Gaza Strip resulting in the killing of a fisherman and the injury of another. Uh, three civilians were reportedly killed due to an Israeli airstrike that targeted a vehicle west of the city of Rafah. A civilian uh, was killed and three others were injured by Israeli snipers near the gate of the Nasser Medical Complex in Khan Yunus, uh, south uh, in the Gaza Strip. The ministry spokesman said in a statement that medical teams were unable to move between the complex buildings due to the constant shooting by the occupation forces snipers. Iranian Foreign Minister Hussein Ambir uh, Abdullahin uh, said the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu seeks to prolong the genocidal war in Gaza, but the region is moving towards stability. Anadolu News Agency has reported at a joint press conference with his Lebanese counterpart Abdullah Bou Habib in Beirut on Saturday, Amir Abdullahin uh, said the war is not the solution and that the end of the war means the end of Netanyahu. Amir Abdullahin reportedly held talks with the Lebanese officials and with leaders of the Palestinian groups uh, based in Lebanon. Speaking to the press, uh, Iran's foreign minister said both countries agree that war is not the solution and they do not seek to expand it. However, he added that any large-scale Israeli attack on Lebanon would be the end of Netanyahu and his extremist government. Amir Abdullahian also said that the Israeli prime minister is trying to hold the White House hostage in order to retain power, seeking to drag the United States into a wider regional conflict. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the United States, uh, police in Georgia, together with federal agencies, are conducting a crackdown on activists involved in a continuing campaign against a controversial police and fire department training center known as Cop City that has included acts of arson and sabotage against equipment being used on the project. This week alone saw Atlanta area raids by law enforcement that took a woman out of her house with no shirt left a naked photo of another woman on display after ransacking a room and dragged a man by his hair while arresting none of them. Brick columns of coal 
gray sign that says Fulton County Jail and Address, beyond which are a black car and two sheriff deputies. The pre-dawn raids on three houses on Thursday were the third uh, SWAT-style operation in residential areas of Atlanta at nearby unincorporated DeKalb County tied to a movement that began in 2021 and the first in which the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives, ATF, played a prominent role. The fight against Cop City has attracted national and global headlines, especially after police shot and killed one environmentalist uh, protester at a campsite in a public park, the first such incidents of this kind in uh, United States history. At least uh, one of these search warrants for Thursday's raid seen by the international press authorized the FBI to confiscate dozens of items from the raided homes, including laptops, cell phones, Defend the Atlanta Force, stickers and posters, and personal journals. The operation came after weeks of Atlanta officials promoting a campaign to catch activists linked to arson against construction and police equipment, all the while activists have been committing more acts of sabotage, alternating with nonviolent civil disobedience. And finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, taking place in Malawi, Malawian government has lifted the visa requirement for travelers from China, the United States, and the United Kingdom, among several other countries, to boost tourism, one of the country's key foreign exchange earners. The development follows the amendment of a section in the country's Immigration Act to aid the entry of international visitors into the Southern African country. Malawian Minister of Homeland Security Ken Zakali Ngoma signed the amendment of the Immigration Act, which was gazetted Wednesday, listing 47 countries across the globe exempted from visa restrictions in Malawi. Germany, France, and Russia are also among the exempted countries outside Africa, while Ghana and Gambia are among the exempted countries inside uh, the African continent. Additionally, nationals from the Southern African Development Community, SADAC, and nationals from the Common Market for Eastern and Southern African, COMESA, except those countries that subject Malawians to visa requirement are exempted from visa requirements. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, February 10th, uh, 2024, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for uh, this week.
The band Love, uh, led by Arthur Lee and Johnny Echols uh, from their second album entitled De Papa. That track uh, was called Seven Plus Seven Is. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, uh, February the 10th, 2024. And we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. The Republic of South Africa, of course, has led the way legally uh, in filing a suit against the State of Israel at the International Court of Justice, the United Nations uh, High Court, World Court. The South African uh, Minister for International uh, Relations and Cooperation uh, delivered an address uh, earlier uh, today. Uh, Let's listen uh, to this address from Dr. Nalidi uh, Pandor. Uh, speaking on the Palestinian situation. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Salutations upon the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. We are indeed privileged to have one of the most formidable and principled people, not only in our country, but globally in our midst. Dr. Grace Naledi Mandisa Pando. Minister Pandor was appointed as the Minister of International Relations and Cooperation in 2019. Prior to this, she served as the Minister of Higher Education and Training, the Minister of Home Affairs, the Minister of Education, and the Minister of Science and Technology twice. She's been a Member of Parliament since 1994, amounting to 30 years of service. Minister Pandor matriculated at Gabardon Secondary School in Botswana. She was a teacher at Ernst Bevan School in London in 1980. And years later, she served as a senior lecturer in the academic support program of the University of Cape Town. Minister Pandor has a PhD from the University of Pretoria, as well as honorary doctorates from the Cape Peninsula University of Technology, the University of Stellenbosch, the University of Lisbon, and the University College of Dublin, Ireland. She also holds a master's degree in education from the University of London, a master's degree in gender linguistics obtained from the University of Stellenbosch, a bachelor's degree and certificate for continuing education from the University of Botswana and Swaziland, a diploma in education from the University of London, a diploma in higher education, administration and leadership from Bryn Mawr's summer program, and a diploma in leadership and development from the Kennedy School Government, Harvard University. Minister Pando became a member of parliament in 1994 and has amassed experience in positions of public office including Deputy Chief Whip of the ANC in the National Assembly, Deputy Chairperson of the National Council of Provinces in 1998 and its chairperson from 1999 to 2004. With all of this, Minister Pando is married to Sharif Pando and together they have four children and two grandchildren. Ladies and gentlemen, let us take a moment to acknowledge the inspiring Dr. Naledi Pandor, a beacon of inspiration, not only in South Africa, but globally. 
She stands as a testament on, on, to unwavering conviction. Beyond being a female pioneer, Dr. Pando's steadfast commitment to advocating for the, for the freedom of Palestine, as well as the oppressed all over the world, resonates as a symbol of courage and resilience. We take pride in her contributions, recognizing the impact she has on both our nation and the world. Dr. Pando has been the prime advocate of taking the Zionist regime of Israel to the International Court of Justice. And for that, all freedom-loving people will forever be indebted to her. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Naledi Pandal. Takbir! 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 Allahu Akbar walillahi alhamd, Dr. Naledi Pando. Uh, shukran for that wonderful introduction. I feel so embarrassed. Thank you very, very much. I wish to begin by greeting everybody this evening. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Today I'm so pleased, before I do the formalities, to just recognize Auntie Farida Omar, so lovely to have you here, Auntie Farida, and my old friend Salimani. I haven't seen Hajj Salimani since we were all on Hajj together many years ago, and we were in that tent at Arafat praying so much and you were crying so much. <laughs> Alhamdulillah, we see you today. Allow me to formally begin then by thanking the leadership of the mosque for inviting to be, me to be here. Thank you very much, Imam. And also the executive committee for allowing me to be here. As I stand here, I speak for all women in the Ummah because women must have a voice. <clears throat> I wish to thank everyone for inviting me to speak to you this evening about this important case that South Africa has taken to the International Court of Justice. But before I make my remarks, because everyone is here and the media is here, let me make it clear, I have no ambition to be a president. <laughs> I'm a public servant, and all I want to do is serve the people. So even though I'm a little older now, if you will have me, I will always be there, inshallah, to serve the people. It is indeed an honor for me to be here to brief you on the work that our government of South Africa has been doing in solidarity with the people of Gaza and all of Palestine. Before I get into the substance of my address, I want to express my gratitude and appreciation for the support that the communities 
of Cape Town in particular, but also of broader South Africa, and indeed almost all humanity, have shown for the positions that we have taken in order to attempt to save the lives of children, men and women in Palestine and in particular in Gaza. I need to stress that the protests and mass mobilization of the people of Cape Town and other parts of South Africa have served as an inspiration to me, my Department of International Relations, as well as our government. The beautiful and inspirational murals on walls in Boerka, Salt River, Bontejevo, and townships across the country symbolize the solidarity of most South Africans with the people of Palestine. Much of this solidarity stems from the fact that we feel and remember our pain when we were subjected to the violence associated with apartheid and settler colonialism. As Nelson Mandela expressed, as was said by Dr. Abdullah, our history behoves us not to turn a blind eye to the oppression of others. And our freedom as South Africans is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinian people. Given that this mosque, Al-Quds, is named after one of the Qiblas, I would like to frame our solidarity with the people of Palestine and indeed our overall foreign policy with references to the approach, approaches of the Abrahamic religions to justice, equality, and fairness. We are taught that the Hadith plays an important role in helping us understand the values that underpin Islamic practice. The following Hadith may be relevant for our discussion today. Anyone who walks with a wrongdoer in order to strengthen him, knowing that all the while he is a wrongdoer, has departed from Islam. And another hadith, the Prophet, may peace be upon him, said, assist your brother and sister Muslim, whether he or she be an oppressor or the oppressed. When asked, but how shall we assist the oppressor? The Prophet, may peace be upon him, said, Assisting an oppressor is by forbidding and withholding that person from oppression. These are just two hadiths that suggest that Muslims cannot and should not collaborate with those who oppress others. And more importantly, that we should refrain from supporting oppressors as this only strengthens them. These hadiths very clearly also enjoin us to support the oppressed in their struggles and engage in activities that will hold the oppressors accountable for their actions. It is thus 
an injunction against siding with the oppressed and also siding with the oppressor and also to ensure that the oppressor cannot act with impunity. The same values, and it's important for me to say this, that I have referred to of the promotion of fairness, justice, and solidarity with the oppressed are to be found in Judaism and Christianity. The South African Jews for a Free Palestine, the SAJFP, recently circulated a statement distancing themselves from the statements of the chief rabbi of South Africa. The South African Jews for a Free Palestine described the statements that the chief rabbi made when he criticized the actions of the South African government in holding Israel to account as racist and supportive of the Israeli oppression of Palestinians. South African Jews for Palestine, for a free Palestine, suggested that Zionism and its concomitant oppression of the Palestinians is in conflict with some of the more important values of Judaism. They stated that the progressive Jewish tradition draws on liberatory values. This includes the concept of tzedakah, which refers to the values of justice and fairness. The implication of this is that doing what is right and just is an ethical obligation in Judaism. South African Jews for a Free Palestine Statement included the following as part of their response to the chief rabbi and others who have been supporting the actions of the Israeli government. They indicated to be Jewish is therefore intrinsically connected to keeping our eyes open to injustice. That is our spiritual and historical duty, reiterated through the experiences of our ancestors and our teachings. Liberation theology is a major component of progressive Christian practice and has always been associated with aligning with the aspirations of oppressed peoples. Some who don't understand Islam will wonder why I quote other great religions. But we as Muslims, we respect all of the book. And it's important that we all understand this. We have seen how Christian liberation theology is active in struggles against poverty, inequality, racism, and colonialism. This point was brought home very powerfully when in the presence of South African clergy and activists in a church in Bethlehem on Christmas Eve last year, Reverend Munda Isaac said the following, Jesus, may peace be upon him, was born among the occupied and marginalized. He is in solidarity with us in Palestine, in our pain and brokenness. Reverend Munta went on to criticize the complicity of the Western world and others in the unfolding genocide in Gaza. 
He said, let it be clear, silence is complicity. An empty calls for peace without a ceasefire and an end to occupation and the shallow words of empathy without direct action are all under the banner of complicity. The progressive and liberatory nature of the three Abrahamic religions has found pride of place in the values and principles of the South African Constitution, as these constitutional values were shaped by the values born out of our struggle against colonialism and apartheid. These values have shaped much of our foreign policy and they call on us to be on the side of the oppressed always. Siding with the oppressed, especially the Palestinians, has been criticized by some here in South Africa as being reckless and jeopardizing our economic interests. We say that standing on the side of justice, ending impunity, and working to stop mass killing in a genocide is very much part of our national interests. Those advocating for economic reprisals against South Africa for not being complicit with genocide are, as Reverend Mutha pointed out, perversely, actively complicit in the genocide in Gaza. These, these are the values and principles that inform South Africa's decision to firstly charge the leaders of Israel with individual criminal liability for the atrocities in Palestine through petitioning the International Criminal Court. We followed that first step up by taking the State of Israel to The Hague for breaches of their responsibilities under the Genocide Convention. In the context of complicity by many of the Western powers, South Africa acted to end the killing of Palestinians, particularly of children, women, and men. As of the 2nd of February, we know 27,019 Palestinians have been killed. Over 11,000 of these are children. 7,500 are women and 1,049 are elderly Palestinian citizens. These numbers do not include those who are missing and who are under the rubble. Over 65,000 people have been injured and close to 1.9 million are displaced. The humanitarian situation is so dire that it is feared, it is feared that without an immediate ceasefire which allows humanitarian aid to flow unhindered into Gaza, more people may likely die from starvation and disease than from the actual military assaults. We took the actions that we did at the ICC and the ICJ in an attempt to save lives, for justice, peace, 
and for an end to violent occupation. Our actions are in line with the most fundamental values of Islam and the religions I cited earlier, and of course, the fundamental values of South Africa's constitution. Allow me to conclude with a brief update on the processes at the International Court of Justice. On 26 January, the International Court of Justice delivered its order on South Africa's request for the indication of provisional measures in our case to hold Israel accountable for genocidal acts in Gaza under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. The provisional orders make it clear that Israel must ensure that it acts to, com to prevent the commission of all acts under Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. This is to prevent and stop A, the killing of members of the group that is Palestinian people in this case, B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to Palestinian people, and C, deliberately inflicting on Palestinian people conditions calculated to cause physical destruction in whole or in part, and D, imposing measures intended to prevent births among Palestinian people. The order is very important in our view and historic, given the acts that the Israeli army have been inflicting on the Palestinian people. The order that follows on from the injunction to adhere to the provisions of Article 2 of the Genocide Convention is extremely important. It states the following. The State of Israel shall ensure with immediate effect that its military does not commit any acts described in point one. Point one was, of course, the order relating to Israel having to stop the killing and other genocidal acts under Article 2 of the Convention. These two orders, if you read them together, can only mean that the judges required that Israel cease its military attacks, which were destroying people and the means necessary for them to live. It is essentially a de facto order for a ceasefire. Many have been quibbling that the court did not use ceasefire, the word. But all the orders that they gave, all the injunctions, can only be acted upon if there is a ceasefire. So clearly, a ceasefire is a corollary to the orders. And it is not Naledi Pando who is saying this. Most honest and credible international lawyers have stressed this point. Clearly, the judges would not have made an order suggesting that you can kill people as long as you don't do it with an intention to genocide. Clearly, they weren't saying that. This is especially important given that in the judgment, the judges indicated in a lot of detail the instances of statements 
of genocidal intent made by Israeli leaders. In fact, they included genocidal statements made by Israeli leaders that were not even part of the application of South Africa. We were astounded at the level of research the judges had gone into in order to arrive at their decision. Another important element of the judgment was the issue of Israel's purported right to self-defense. The judgment only noted once that Israel used the notion of self-defense to justify their actions in Gaza. The court only noted this approach by Israel but did not entertain it any further. They did not need to, as the court is well aware, that the ICJ had confirmed in the wall case of 2004 that an occupying power cannot rely on the right to self-defense as stated in Article 51 of the UN Charter. If you engage in a conflict with people that you are occupying, you are in breach of the UN Charter. The people of Gaza are still under a belligerent occupation. And whenever we speak of Palestine, don't speak of it as an ordinary conflict. This is about occupation. The people of Palestine are occupied. It's not two equal free states fighting each other. It is an occupier fighting those they have occupied and essentially slaughtering them. This is what is happening and we need to say so. Despite its claims, these orders are binding upon Israel. It has to immediately implement these provisional measures to prevent a further increase of its human rights violations. In fact, all states now have a legal obligation to ensure respect for the provisional measures, as well as ensure that they are not complicit in the genocide. Essentially, if the case proceeds as we anticipate, and it is found that Israel committed genocide, all those who were complicit are as guilty as Israel. There are many who are seeking to undermine these orders. For example, they attempt to redefine it so that the killings continue. Some Western governments immediately said, we hear the judgment, but they didn't order a ceasefire. We can see this only as aiding and abetting. This order for us is a win for international law and for the Genocide Convention, which embodies the solemn pledge to prevent the crime of genocide and hold those responsible to account. It is truly tragic that this convention, which was drafted following the Holocaust against Jewish people in Europe, that it is the very people who then moved to Palestine who are offending 
this convention. It's tragic. Despite its attempts to block the ICJ from making this order, and in its failed attempt to spin the judgment itself as a victory for them, Israel stands facing the international community and peoples of the world, having failed to deflect attention from its crimes or justify its unfolding genocide. It is now naked to the world for the first time. For the first time in 75 years, Israel is being held accountable by an institution and by the global community. We have now, as South Africa, broken a dangerous culture of impunity that has characterized the illegal occupation of Palestine, the oppression of apartheid in Palestine, and its now unfolding genocide. For the first time, we have opened up for the world to see. We, South Africa. So before I totally break the podium, allow me to stop and thank you once more for the opportunity to address you today in this wonderful, blessed mosque. I trust that you will all continue to be guided by Islamic values that place a premium of justice, fairness, and solidarity with the oppressed. I thank you as the South African Muslim Ummah for not forgetting that although we have won our freedom from the oppression of apartheid, it is our duty to seek that freedom for all humanity, for all who are oppressed. This is our duty and we must carry it out. So, I, I don't take the work, the campaign, the protests, I don't take them lightly. What they mean to me is an appreciation of something absolutely wonderful. We know, through you, that we, as the people of South Africa, while we waged a mighty struggle against apartheid, our leaders went from country to country across the world and asked for support. And the international community joined in in developing a concept some of us forget called international solidarity. That is all that is making us stand up today. That being free, enjoying human rights, having a constitution, having sovereign right to your land, does not mean you enjoy it purely for yourself. Having been joined in international solidarity, your task today is to join the world in fighting for the people of Palestine until they are free. This is what we must do. 
I see today that one of my colleague ministers has sent me a recent statement that Israel has called us the legal arm of Hamas. <laughs> the government of South Africa is the legal arm of Hamas. You know that they've been saying that I take my orders from Iran and that I'm an ISIS supporter. I don't even know what ISIS stands for. But this is some of the um, fake news and insults that will circulate. They even go to my family and my husband, my children, and, you know. But it's, it's fine. We, we will strive on. As long as the people of Palestine know we as South Africa are with them, we will strive on. We won't tire. And what I hope we can try and do together, we have sent some aid from our department and government. We have another second package that is sitting somewhere near the Rafa border, which we would like to get across. But now, the lies have grown even bigger. They're now accusing UN workers of having played a role in the October 7 attack by Hamas. And so they have stopped funding to the UN agency that was supporting people who need aid. So I've called on my colleagues of the South, East Asia, Latin America, progressive African countries, let's put our heads together and let's fund that agency and let's make sure that aid gets there. So, let us not idly sit by and watch events. It's not our culture. Let us be active. Let us try and make a difference. Let's have petition after petition after petition. I've been talking to some of our sisters and brothers, and I say there are five or so countries that are providing arms to Israel, that provide the real dedicated support. Let's have 10 people every day outside their embassy. Stop the genocide. That's all. Every day. And because we are so connected, let us talk to our brothers and sisters throughout the world, and all of us do that, it will make a mark. Because the people of Palestine must not be forget, forgotten. I thank you for all you have done. Assalamu alaikum. Takbir. Allahu Akbar walillahilhamd. Thank you, Minister Dr. Nalindi Pando for a very soul-stirring presentation indeed. The minister has made many, many great points, but what stands out for me personally is that she said, women must have a voice. So much for many parts of our country where women are not even allowed inside the masjid so un-Islamic. So I ask of all our young ladies, 
Yeah, you have an icon to follow. Come forward and follow in the footsteps of this great minister, Dr. Naledi Pendo, taking a stance, a fearless stance against all forms of injustice and oppression. And this is the kind of leadership that we need. Leadership on every level, whether it is nationally, locally, globally, on ulama level, every level we need this kind of fearless leadership. We have the guts to look a tyrant in the face and say, you are wrong. Dr. Naledi Pando, shukran for a beautiful soul-stirring presentation. We have asked already in the week for people to forward their questions. We have received numerous questions, but I have made a mark of three particular questions. If you maybe can address each question of these three in about two to three minutes because of the brevity of time, I will read it and then I hand the paper to the Honorable Minister. Question number one by a Mr. or Mrs. Ali. Respected Minister, the South African government position currently is a two-state solution to this present crisis. After the latest genocide and the statements by Israel's Netanyahu, do you think this is still possible and is it a recipe for a Bantustan in the making? That is question number one. Question number two, not sure if you are aware, but South African Muslims are currently being victimized and denied entry into Masjid al-Aqsa in Jerusalem, of which my own sister and brother-in-law were part of that victims. What is the government going to do about it? And are you considering any retaliatory measures? And the final question number three. Israel is obviously defying the ICJ verdict in terms of compliance. Would the government consider another court action against Israel at the International Criminal Court to seek a warrant of arrest for Netanyahu? Um, with respect to, to the first question about a two-state solution, um, it is the position of the government of South Africa that this can be the only resolution to this situation. You will remember Pick Bota. He said there will never be a black president. We had Nelson Mandela first. You'll remember. We know that situations of conflict will end by negotiation. So Netanyahu may sound like Pick Bota, but in the end, someone from Israel will be around a table of negotiation for a state for Palestine. And to have a state, the issue of settlements has to be addressed. Because you can't have a state with separate bits of land. So clearly, the settlements and their current positioning 
is an important part of the negotiations deliberations. So yes, we do believe that there must be a two-state solution and that it cannot be based on non-contiguous pieces of land. That's not a state. That's a Bantustan. That's not what we support. Then, I was not aware of the uh, exclusion of South African Muslims, but I'm not surprised. When you take on a cause, you must expect that there will be retribution. So what do you do? You strengthen your power of protest. We need to find ways of fighting back. We need to speak to Muslims all over the world, especially Muslims in the Middle East, countries that still have relations with Israel. We need to compel, we need to persuade, we need to act, we need to speak. And I don't think that things should be left only to government. I think we must be activists. We must be activists. There are human rights organizations in Palestine. There are a number of activists. We can work together with them. We should be able to mount action that will show Israel that they cannot close down our mosque. So on retaliatory measures, well, they've already harmed themselves. They are not uh, importing our grapes, the best grapes in the world. They stopped their airline from coming to South Africa. Well, it used to have very few passengers. So there are retaliatory uh, measures. But what we need to look to are our biggest trading partners and make sure that they continue to trade with us. And we also need to speak to countries with which we do not yet have large trade volumes, such as countries in East Asia. We've got to begin trading much more with Indonesia. We've got to do much more with Philippines. We've already started with Malaysia. So we've got to broaden the map of our economic engagement. Because if we rely on our traditional partners, we know that they don't support the ideology and the political positions that we have taken. On, on defying the United Nations, uh, the International Court of Justice, and indeed the UN, we were aware that uh, Israel would be defiant because they have been. They don't care about what anyone says. But today, the ICJ case is going to continue, up to the point of deciding the issue of genocide. What we wanted to do is the issue must be in the court. The court has to investigate thoroughly. All that evidence, all those atrocities will be available to all of us and the global community. And this is an important victory. When you are in a mighty battle, you look for victory after victory after victory. Some may be small, Others might be big, but don't undermine any step. South Africa has done a huge thing with this case, and you need to keep saying so. Don't say Israel didn't do this, Israel that. We want the people of Palestine to be free. 
say to the South African government, continue, get other countries to support you, and you support us. My only fear about you, the people of South Africa, is that uh, you seem to be heading toward a weak government through the next election. And I can tell you, if you have a government that can't make its own decisions, the things we hold to our heart will be the first to be overturned. So watch out. Ensure there's a government that is able to take decisions and execute them. This is our duty. That was uh, South African uh, Minister for International Relations and Cooperation, uh, Foreign Minister Dr. Naledi Pandor, uh, speaking in South Africa uh, at an event uh, on the question of Palestinian liberation, uh, ending the siege of Gaza, and also discussing the South African government's lawsuit in the International Court of Justice, the World Court, against the State of Israel, charging it uh, with genocide. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for this Saturday, February the 10th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Maybe we find 
staff from NOMO, the Afro-American Studies Center, the Black Students' Union, ASUCLA, Associate Student Speakers Bureau, Student Legislative Council, Graduate Student Association, University Religious Conference for making uh, this great event possible. Now I'd like to introduce Brother Alan Brooks, Editor-in-Chief of NOMO. First of all, welcome all of my sisters and brothers to this very special occasion. I want to welcome members of the FBI, the CIA, representatives of Martha and John Mitchell, to whom Mrs. Du Bois has become a tremendous pain. And I want to thank most of you I want to thank most of all you people for coming. I had the good fortune Sunday of last week to go to San Francisco to hear what in my opinion was the most dynamic, the most powerful message that I've ever been exposed to in my lifetime. That message came from Mrs. Du Bois. I thought upon hearing it that it was something that should be shared with the people in Southern California, both black and white. And with that in mind, I set about putting the wheels in motion so that we could share Mrs. Du Bois with you. For those of you who are not aware of who she is, she is the wife of the late Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, and in her own right, an intellectual and a scholar. It is my pleasure at this time to bring to you Mrs. Shirley Graham Du Bois. Brother Chairman, let me say, um, Madam Chairman, Goodness, I must not overlook the ladies. Uh, I want to say that I'm very happy to be here. I had the pleasure of driving yesterday from San Francisco to Palo Alto, where I spoke at Stanford University. And then I took a plane down to Santa Barbara, where I met with a beautiful audience in Santa Barbara, and then this morning I have driven from Santa Barbara up here to Los Angeles. You have such a beautiful country. I, I, I couldn't help, as we drove along through these marvelous valleys and hills, to think about the song America the Beautiful. It is a beautiful land. It is a wonderful land with lots of good, generous-hearted, earnest people in it. Now, we're going to address ourselves this morning to the, my mission in coming to you from Africa, from the Middle East, 
and from other places where I've been, is to talk about peace with justice. Peace with justice. Because there can be no peace, really, either in this land or in other lands, until there is justice. There can be no stopping of the struggles of people who have been oppressed, who have been dispossessed, and who have suffered from exploitation. They are not going to lie down and accept any peace of the grave. They don't want that. We are living in an era of liberation. And this is true in every continent and every land in this world. Whether it is South America or North America, whether it is Africa, whether it is Asia, the Middle East, wherever it is, people say we're going to be free. We are not going to be exploited. We are not going to live under imperialist colonialism any longer. My father was a Methodist preacher. And there were several texts which were his favorites, which have remained my favorites, too. And one of them was, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Do you realize that one of the great aims of all those who would enslave or who are enslaving is to keep the truth away from them. This is a tactic, a well-known tactic. Keep the truth out. Don't let the people know. You are here in a great institution, a very great institution of learning. And you can learn so much in this institution of learning. And I rejoice to see these students, to meet with you, and to know that you are taking advantage of the facilities of this great university, to know that these facilities are open to you. And I particularly uh, congratulate the black students and their groups who has seen to it that they have a department of black studies here in this university. There were no departments of black studies in universities when I went to school in the United States, and I was supposed to get a very good education. But I didn't know, for instance, that Egypt was part of Africa. Nobody ever told me that. Where was Egypt? Well, I really don't know. If you're really going to pin me down, I don't know just where we thought Egypt was. But it was some vague place, vaguely connected with Europe, vaguely connected with the civilizations of Europe. You see, since the Western civilization arose in the valley of the Nile, which is Egypt, and since the valley of the Nile is in Africa, and since the first 
pharaohs were what would be known in this world today as blacks or Negroes, it just did not behoove Western education to talk about Egypt being Africa. But I have a... I've got a kind of thing about that point, that Egypt is Africa. I live there, and I see these evidences all around me every day. I have been away for almost 10 years, but as I come back, it's almost as if I never left home, both in all sorts of ways. However, there are some new things here, and one of them is this growing consciousness of black people, the growing consciousness and belief in themselves, the growing consciousness in their own dignity and in their own traditions and in their own background. You see, years ago, when my husband, almost 70 years ago now, began to write Souls of Black Folk, Gifts of Black Folk, Black Folk Now and Then, Black Reconstruction, his use of this constant word black, considered, he was considered a little eccentric, a little off. Why is he always pushing black? You see, it's taken pretty near 50 years for you to catch up with the fact that black was important. <laughs> as I say, returning after nearly 10 years, it is as if I never left home. And one reason is that I have been living for these 10 years in Ghana, in the People's Republic of China, in Egypt, and from Ghana as a base in Africa, I have had occasion to travel very widely in Africa, or most places in Africa, of course, excluding South Africa. They wouldn't let me in there either. Uh, from China, I have been in Pakistan and Cambodia. From Egypt, I have traveled in other countries, Islamic countries in Africa, the Sudan, and in other countries of the Middle East. And it is remarkable that in none of these countries did I feel like a stranger or a foreigner. Why? Because all of these people had suffered and were suffering the same kinds of discrimination. They knew the hand of the exploiter in all of these places. They were part of the people who had been exploited through the ages. And I could instantly, they accepted me coming from a people in this continent who had been exploited, who had been enslaved. They accepted me as a sister in all of these various places. And I have felt at home among these people. 
reminding me very vividly of Langston Hughes' very beautiful poem, which he dedicated to my husband many years ago. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo, and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised pyramids above it, and I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans and seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers, my soul has grown deep like the rivers. We are united in this world by these mighty rivers that flow through these many, many great lands upon which where we have been sometimes in history and where our ancestors came from, we are united with all of them. Now, uh, ten years ago, darker peoples everywhere and their friends was rejoicing because of the liberation of Africa. The United Nations declared 1960 the year of Africa because so many independent African states joined that body that year. And joyous independent celebrations were held throughout Africa. Then in May 1963, at Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, came the first great African summit conference. I was there. It was a magnificent pageantry of color and eloquence and passionate speeches. I, we hailed the organization of the, of the African unity. The Charter of African Unity was signed there, and we wrote about it, how wonderful it was. I was one of the many people who wrote about how wonderful this was. I know now that much that happened at that summit conference was really very foolish and very naive. Why do I say that? For how sensible was it to stand up and proclaim our intentions to the world of imperialists, colonialists, neo-colonialists, plunderers and thieves when we did not have the power to rebuild Africa in our modern world. We boasted at that conference of an independent, united Africa, a strong, bountiful Africa, we told of the marvelous resources of this continent, of how we were going to take them and use them for the development of our own people, how we were going to be able to invite the children of Africa, wherever they were, to come back and share in the riches of this very, very rich continent, beautiful continent. We got up there and told all of our plans. And before the ink on that charter was dry, the enemies of Africa had united to bring us down. 
And in a short time, wave after wave of coup d'etats swept across the continent. And country after country fell under the man's hammer. Imperialists, neo-colonialists, call them what you will, whether they come from west or east or north or south, they are the same greedy exploiters. Had my generation learned so much that we thought we would liberate Africa by cooperating with the age-old exploiters of that, of, of that continent, they who had grown fat and sleek and prosperous had no, never will have, and, and, uh, and, and have not now any intention of retreating into that predominantly cold, gray fastness of their northwestern zones. They love our African sunshine, our beautiful broad rivers, our bright gold, our sparkling diamonds, our copper, magnesia, bauxite, and oil. They do not love Africans or the children of Africa, wherever they are. Among the various decisions of the Western world, which have affected the lives and destinies of Afro-Asians, the non-whites, the peoples of the so-called third world, none have revealed more clearly the very essence of Western racism, nor demonstrated more conclusively the capacity of the Western world to transform, translate, and legitimatize its basic power thrust under the cloak of international law and morality. Nothing demonstrates it more clearly than two decisions which were reached in London, one in 1909, the other in 1917. The first known as the South African Act of Union and the second the Belfort Declaration. South Africa and Palestine, land some 3,500 miles apart, but each the concern of the same imperialist interest, each sacrificed in the name of Western peoples and British empire building and the details of the sacrifice arranged by the same statesman. In both cases, a perceived injustice committed by Western powers against the Jew on one hand and the Afrikaner on the other was to be atoned for at the expense of those judged too uncivilized, too primitive, too backward to establish an equal moral claim. In both cases, the self-identification of the Afrikaner and Jew as a chosen people the inheritors of promised land was explicitly and implicitly accepted by first Great Britain and subsequently by the bulk of the Western world as proof of its own capacity for tolerance. In each case, it was for the natives a crime to protest or to give any resistance. It was treasonable and illegal it violated the canons of international morality. It was in 1900 at the first racist conference meeting in London 
that W.E.B. Du Bois enunciated that oft-repeated but little heeded warning. The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. The relation of the darker peoples to the lighter races of men in Asia, in Africa, in America, and in the islands of the sea. It must be noted that he was speaking of the world, not simply of America. This conference met during the Anglo-Boer War of 1899-1902, and this body urged Great Britain to seize the opportunity resulting from the imminent victory of Great Britain over the Boer settlers in South Africa to guarantee the human and political rights of the African majority. Chamberlain did affirm that his, Her Majesty's government will not overlook the interests and the welfare of the native races. Yet, when the Boer forces lay prostrate and their theories of race supremacy, slavery, and chosen people mythology appeared in disrepute, British liberal and humanitarian sentiment saved the situation for the defeated white minority. And in 1909, when the Act of Union was signed, it was hailed as a great triumph of liberal magnanimity. Since it conferred upon the white minority population the capacity to rule without impediment or any necessity to respect the rights of the indigenous population who were excluded from all governmental bodies. Throughout the entire history of the Union, Council urged the Africans not to put forth any extreme demands, since this would only play into the hands of the reactionaries. And that while the races had no scruples about setting forth extreme demands, compromise was always in favor of the whites. Militant African organizations and leadership was rejected in favor of compromise, and in the end, all was lost. At this time, Lord Belford, whose name comes in later, said, the only glimmer of hope of dealing successfully with the real race problem in South Africa is not to attempt to meddle with it ourselves, but having made this union parliament to trust the men of like way of thinking as ourselves to rise to the occasion. Harold Wilson some years later, refusing to use any force in Rhodesia on the basis that they, these people of Ian Smith's regime, were kith and kin. And therefore, while Great Britain can rush ships and parachutes across the ocean to our little Anguilla, to Bermuda, and to any other spot in the world where non-whites lift their heads, they could do nothing at all to prevent 200,000 whites in Rhodesia from taking over and practically enslaving the millions of blacks in that country. The Pan-African Congress of 1923 protested against what was happening in southern Africa and said, what more paradoxical figure today confronts the world than the official head of that state, Smuts, build, trying to build peace and goodwill in Europe by standing on the necks and hearts of millions of Africans. 
in Cape Town, the legitimate capital of fascist South Africa, the legislative capital, stands a giant statue of Cecil John Rhodes with his right hand prophetically pointing northward. Rhodes was the chief architect of British colonialism in southern Africa, and his dream was to colonize Africa for the British from the Cape to the Mediterranean, fighting and wiping out everything in their path his cohorts managed to push northward 2,000 miles. They were still a long ways from the Mediterranean, but they had come into rich, fertile lands and were bogged down in the attempt to wipe out the Zimbabwe people. When finally they managed to push them back into the jungle, they settled there and they called the land Rhodesia after its founder. That's like, you know, Columbus discovering America. <laughs> now, this type of wide-open imperialist takeover is no longer possible in the 20th century. It's on a par with that arch-imperialist Disraeli making a gift of the Suez Canal to Queen Victoria and thereby gaining unprecedented honors for himself in the court of King James. But since fighting two world wars among themselves with our help, primarily for the possession of the vast resources of lands belonging to non-white peoples, the whites have found themselves confronted with an increasing problem. The aftermath of these two world wars on dark peoples was unexpected. During the course of their fighting among themselves, they had spoken eloquently about freedom, about democracy, about courage, and about free people. And suddenly, these same words were being hurled at them from all over the world. And after all his efforts, the man saw the riches of Africa, Asia, and the Middle East slipping right out of his hands. Fast and furiously, he worked out new devices to shut off such disastrous possibilities. In Africa, he granted independence here and there. After insisting on helping to write the new constitution, he attended all the independent celebrations. And he made great speeches, I never will forget, seated at the banquet table when uh, Nkrumah was being inaugurated president of Ghana. And the British representative of the Queen made some remark something like this. Now we shall march forward shoulder to shoulder, our brothers in this new republic and in members of the British Commonwealth, we will go forward together to higher places of prosperity and advantage for all our peoples. Seated beside me was a half-asleep Ghanaian minister, one of the new ministers. Now, he was half asleep because they'd been working for day and night on these celebrations. He really hadn't had much chance to sleep. 
do for, for many hours. But he heard this man, and he looked up and said, Boy, well, that's the first time I heard that we was walking shoulder to shoulder. Speaking at a gathering of African foreign ministers meeting in Addis Ababa last fall, Mr. Dialitelli, Secretary General of the OAU, said that in the Arab-Israeli conflict, quote, fraternity and solidarity with the United Arab Republic must not falter. He warned, none of our African states are safe from similar aggression. It is the duty of all African countries to condemn unreservedly the aggression of foreign troops, to call for their unconditional withdrawal from occupied territories. And the Egyptian minister, El Sayed Mohammed Fayyad, told the conference, your brethren in the northern part of the continent shoulder the honor and responsibility of liberating an occupied part of the territory of a sister African country from imperialist aggression, which has been condemned by the international community. Until very recently, even in African countries, the struggle now being waged in this part of the continent has been shunted aside merely as a Middle East conflict, removed from the liberation struggles of Africa. For their own good reasons, divide and conquer. This is the way it is always presented in the Western press and radio. The situation became clearer and took on new meaning with a decisive revolution which took place in Libya one year ago last September. I want to talk just for a minute about Libya, an African country, a country in the north, northern section on the shores of the Mediterranean. It had been an Italian colony, and the Italian government had sent their overflow of people into Libya. They had taken over land there and settled their people on this land. This was some years ago. Then it was taken over and for so far as everything was concerned, by Great Britain. Uh, there was a king there, but this uh, king um, really didn't have much to say one way or the other. Uh, he couldn't because his country was an occupied country. Oil had been discovered in Libya just a few years ago, very, very rich oil wells, so that Libya was producing great wealth, and his people remained very, very poor. The people were not at all enjoying any of this wealth. Tourists came there, and to Tripoli, and to the beautiful uh, beaches of Libya, and they were put up at great hotels owned and operated by Europeans and Americans. And they spent their money there with the Europeans and Americans. Big business from Great Britain, big business from America, had their headquarters in Libya. 
and the people of Libya remained very, very poor, very poor. One day in September last year, year ago this September, a handful of young men, the oldest was not yet 28, seized power in Libya. And I want to tell you that they seized power. I want to emphasize that. They had never held a mass meeting. They had never had a television or radio broadcast. They had never distributed a pamphlet. They had never made a, an appeal to anybody. They had never opened their mouths to anybody except to these chosen few handful of young men who on that morning seized power. The Western press, in, well, in Cairo, I heard BBC say that there was a little trouble in Libya. <laughs> but it would pass. The king was in Turkey, but he would hurry back. And uh, he was there in well, he said convalescing and, you know, resting and enjoying his boundless wealth. Uh, but they didn't exactly, it, it couldn't be very serious. You see, Great Britain had its, the biggest military base that it had was in Libya. The biggest American base was also in Libya. Well, it, so it couldn't be anything particular. Well... Then we heard that the king had changed his mind about returning to Libya. He never did return to Libya, and he signed some papers of abdication. And then the next thing we heard was that the British and American bases had been told to get off of Libyan soil. They didn't throw them off overnight. They couldn't because, my goodness, they had every kind of equipment that you ever heard of, both of them there. They had planes and parachuters, and uh, their soldiers had miles and miles of sandy planes to practice on, and their parachuters would go out and practice over the deserts. They had unlimited equipment, both countries. It was interesting that after they had been given a certain amount of time to leave, that a black commander of a great United States military setup showed up in Libya. And he was made commander of Wheeler's base, the highest ranking such officers I've heard of. I don't know whether or not it was thought that this black brother would be able to talk to these little ignorant people in Libya and show them the error of their ways or not. I don't know that. I don't know that at all. All I know is that when he arrived, he was told how many weeks they had to get out. 
and they got. Great Britain is still looking for some place to settle down in because you do know that no country in Europe is going to let Great Britain have any military base on their soil. Not a country in Europe is going to allow that. And England, Great Britain, is too small for any such kind of base. And anyhow, Great Britain's got so much trouble with the Irish in Ireland that they got a war on their hands right inside the British Isles. So they don't dare set down any more military equipment for fear it might be captured by the Irish. <laughs> so the British are out looking for another base. Now they've decided that they're going to remain east of Suez. The last government has said that they're going to leave east of Suez. Now they've decided that they're going to have to remain east of Suez. I make a prophecy. They're still going to leave east of Suez. You see, people have just decided that they've got to be free. Now let me say a word about this Belfort Declaration. Because I, oh, I do want to tell you one thing, though, before I leave Libya. Wheeler's base has been renamed. It is now called Uqba bin Nafa. I'll tell you who Uqba bin Nafa was. He was a black commander of Islamic forces that swept across the northern Africa and drove the Roman legions off of African soil and went up into Spain. He was a black African commander, and Wheeler's base is now named after a black commander, Akhtar bin before and some speaking in some other places, I wanted to make it very clear that the enemy across the Suez Canal from Egypt is not an enemy because it is a Jewish settlement, not at all. It is an enemy because it is an imperialist white supremacist base. That's why it's an enemy. And I want you to understand that when you hear about the planes and you hear about the commando forces crossing the Suez Canal, to know that our forces have not dropped one bomb on any Israeli soil. Anything that they have dropped, any commanding forces that they have in crossing the Suez Canal, they're still in Africa. They're still in Egypt. They have been fighting a defense war to drive invaders off their land. They have not been fighting an aggressive war. Up to this date, they haven't. 
the, this must be understood. I have visited in Cairo a synagogue, a synagogue which is said to have been founded by the prophet Aaron. You see, when they said it's been rebuilt and built over and over and over down through these hundreds of years, thousands of years, really. You see, when Moses led the children of Israel, this is what I was told by the rabbi of this synagogue, when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, not all of them wanted to go, just like our folks. Just like our folks, you know. And not all of us follow nobody. So it seems that the children of Israel didn't all want to follow Moses. And they decided they wanted to stay in Egypt. And so Aaron, the story is, set up this synagogue. This area, which is now incorporated into Cairo, of course Cairo wasn't there when this happened, it was a small village, not so very far from the pyramids. Uh, when this area, which is now part of Cairo, is still a predominantly Jewish community. They have their kosher shops and all other things that you see in a predominantly Jewish community, and there has never been a pogrom in Egypt. Never. Never down through the years. I will say something else about Egypt. Many of you may have heard the word, as I'm sure I first heard it, when I went to Sunday school and I got my picture card and I learned about how the angel of the Lord appeared unto Joseph and told him to arise and take the child Jesus and his mother and flee into Egypt because Herod was going to kill the child if he could find him. And then, then this is in the first chapter of Matthew. Then it is said that Joseph arose and he took the child and they traveled into Egypt. And the angel of the Lord told him further, to remain in Egypt until I shall tell you. Welcome back. And that was a lecture by uh, Shirley Graham DuBois uh, from 1970 at the University of California, Los Angeles on uh, African and African-American history. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, uh, February 10th, 2024, and we'll have more programming on African American History Month in uh, program in, in uh, episodes to come. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Newswire, uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. 
We're going to close out uh, our program uh, with uh, the music of Horace Silver. Uh, This is from a 1968 album entitled Tributes uh, or Serenade uh, to a Soul Sister. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.